everybody, this is Oscar Dahl, I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies. Matthew, what's going on, buddy? Hey, pal. Uh, I was wondering if you'd be comfortable with me doing a, a quick plug here at the top of the show. I'm gonna, plug, I'm plug, gonna plug, plug in plug. mood. Um, I feel like I haven't really been utilizing We Like Movies as a platform to plug my own film, because I do sort of bristle at that shameless self-promotion a little bit. <laughs> That's not shameless. But if I can just briefly say, hey, everybody, uh, in case I haven't talked about it in a while, um, we just released uh, a film earlier this month. It's called Cassidy Red, and it's out on VOD and DVD right now. And um, I even was uh, fortunate enough to get invited onto the Screen Junkies Universe panel show this weekend um, to go on and talk about, uh, amongst other things, our film Cassidy Red and the fact that it's available for rent and purchase now. If you're interested in hearing me talk about, you know, Batgirl and Joss Whedon while also plugging our film, uh, check out Screen Junkies' episode from uh, this past Friday. And then if you're still interested after hearing me talk about that, why not go check out our movie on iTunes or Amazon? Yeah, and if you listen to this podcast and you haven't purchased Cassidy Red yet, <laughs> shame on you. Well, shame on you. We're just we're just happy that you're here listening to our uh, dulcet tones. But if you still like us at the end of this and want more things from us, then uh, yeah, think about going out and purchasing a uh, ninety-minute western. There's worse ways to spend a Sunday afternoon. Matt, we've given the people thousands of hours of, of free content. The least they can do, you know, drop ten bucks on VOD. Come on. <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not looking to uh, you know we're not looking to make any money off of this project. But if this project can lead to for future projects, then I feel that um, it will have been an enor- enormous success. It already feels like an enormous success because. Uh, making movies is very difficult, and it's very difficult to finish them, and it's very difficult to actually get them out there in the world where people can see them. So in that regard, I'm very proud that I actually do have a film to show to people. So yes. ch- check it out. We'd appreciate we, We'd appreciate your uh, patronage. Do it, people. Plugging over. Plug done. Um, all right, today we are here to talk about Annihilation, Alex Garland's new film. Um, and then in the second half, we are going to give our final... Academy Awards predictions, and there is a lot of money on the line between Matt and I. I won't spoil how much, but it's at least two twenties. So, are we rolling? Uh, you don't necessarily need to make up your mind about this right now, but will we be rolling the um, the money that we stalemated on from our last bet into this? Are we are we going double or nothing? Well, you can't go double or nothing if no one won the first bet, right? That's good, that's a good point. Yeah, but I think we'll. Do, I think I think yes, we'll roll back and have the <laughs> have the same bet. Our, our remarkable stalemate on our uh, nomination predictions our, uh, podcast, but um, nonetheless, uh, let's get into it, Matt. Annihilation. Alex Garland just coming off of uh, his directorial debut, Ex Machina, a film that both of us adored quite loved, a bit. Loved, loved that movie. Twenty sixteen, Ex Machina. Twenty fifteen. Yeah, I I want to say 2016, and I I believe we, I, I think it was in my top five at the end of the year. It might have been number two or number three. Like it was way up there. I fucking adore that movie. Yep, it was my number two of 2016. So um, I'm right there with you. I just I just love Alex Garland and what he kind of represents. Mm-hmm. I find him to be so fascinating and so accomplished. You know, like he's a best-selling author. He's a screenwriter. He's a director. He's, you know, sort of like a tip. I mean, he's like a futurist in a lot of ways. I mean, he's very eloquent. And when he talks about science and technology and philosophy and chemistry and 
um, mm-hmm. engine, you know, engineering. Like he's just he's a really interesting interview. If you haven't listened to the most recent, uh, uh, did you listen to the the Ringer Channel Channel Thirty Three podcast? I haven't podcast? I haven't listened to that one yet. No, he's on this week, and God, what a fascinating guy! And also like not just self-deprecating, but perfectly willing to like entertain criticisms of his work as well. Really interesting dude. I, I like him a lot. So as a result, I was very much looking forward to this film because I think, but also a little bit leery because how do you follow up a legitimate like modern classic like uh, Ex Machina? And it did feel like he's going almost immediately and directly back to a very similar well sure. right? in the science fiction genre, sort of adult dystopian almost futurism science fiction that sort of thing that they felt pretty similar um going in I, I i read this book annihilation uh just very recently actually well it's important that you bring that up because i, I think a lot of people don't realize that this is a an, an, i think a lot of people who loved ex machina but don't know much haven't done their research might have just presumed that this was another writer director situation but no he's adapting a very a very well-regarded science fiction novel yeah, and I, I found it interesting hearing him uh, talk. I, I didn't listen to his interview, but I, I read a couple articles about how he, he adapted it, um, and much has been made about how this veers off quite drastically from, from the book. And, and, and the book reads like a almost sort of perfect screenplay. I mean, it's very short. It's like 190 pages, and it would be really easy just to go sort of beat by beat. Uh, but the way he did this, and I feel like I've I've heard other directors do this too. Maybe Paul Thomas Anderson with Inherent Vice was the same way. But anyway, he he, he read the book once, took some notes while doing it, but then just went from there and did his own thing. So just sort of took the the seed of uh, of the story and and made something his own, um, which I find interesting and is probably a better route than trying to just really hit a story beat by beat and really a, a adapt it to a T. In a lot of ways, this is his own sort of auteurish film that just sort of got a jumping off point from the novel. Uh, yeah, fair enough. I also heard during that same interview that he his plan was to veer pretty far in tone from the novel, and he brought that up to the author, whose name escapes me right now, Jeff something or other. Vandermeer. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and he said, hey man, just so you know, my plan is to do something kind of radical and different, and if that's not the kind of adaptation you're looking for, then I totally understand if you want to replace me with somebody else. So he basically had to, you know, he had to get Jeff's approval to go off in this direction, otherwise he didn't really want to make the film. Yeah, and it sounded like the author was pretty cool with all of it and has really responded well to uh, the differences between the book and the movie and is a, is a big fan, which is which is cool. Yeah. Um, I suspect when you're... Uh, Getting your first uh, book adapted into a movie, you kind of just want that want that check, you know, to clear. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I mean, I can't imagine a better situation to be in as the author than being like, oh, here's a guy who not only just made a science fiction masterpiece, but he's also an accomplished novelist himself. Yeah, you know, so like this is a pretty perfect situation for Jeff Vandermeer, and um, more power to him. I mean, I heard that um, that Garland actually read the book while they were shooting Ex Machina, like he was reading it on set. So it's no wonder that he was able to turn this around. I mean, being able to make two movies in, in uh, three years is a pretty big deal. Again, there, there wasn't, I imagine, nearly as much heavy lifting with this adaptation as there are with other science fiction adaptations. You know, okay. the, difference, the difference between this book and Dune like, is, <laughs> is vast, right? Like, a lot of science fiction books and, you know, have crazy amount of, of minutiae and, and exposition and backstory and all this shit. You know, you, f- you have to really parse and figure out what's necessary to keep and what can you, you know, stay away from, uh, you know, because you only have two hours, right? 
Um, but this this book, this property sounds uh, like more of a novella, really. Yeah, it's pretty short, and you know, it starts right in the action, and it it, it, it sort of it doesn't require much in, in the way of backstory or exposition. So I, I can understand how and why he was able to really fast-track this thing. So how familiar are you with the distribution model for this particular film? Because it's a little, it's kind of unique. Yeah, I, I saw it's, was it U.S.? Canada and China are the only ones getting theatrical releases. Everyone else is getting Netflix. And that is a decision I think that came, I believe that's exactly right, and that's a decision that came late in the game, right? Yeah. Like that was not the original distribution model. That was Paramount sort of maybe getting a little bit scared after Mother slash Blade Runner 2049. I I suppose so. Um, I mean, Paramount well, had an abysmal year last year. Let's let's just put that out there. So they're already sort of like on the defensive at the moment. And this is this is a weird one. I mean, Ex Machina technically made money, but it wasn't a huge hit. And the budget on this is about three and a half times what Ex Machina was. Yeah. So w- what's the financial benefit of releasing it on Netflix in most of the world compared to re- releasing it theatrically and then eventually putting it on Netflix. Well, I presume Netflix had to write a big old check on the front end. Yeah. And uh, you're not going to have to actually make DCPs for all the various um, territories that you're going to. And, you know, you're probably also not going to adjust your marketing strategy accordingly. Mm-hmm. And that's you're not going to have to do as big of a push on that end. I'm honestly not super educated in terms of like how what the breakdown is in terms of how much money they might be saving by going the Netflix route, but it, clearly they you know these guys crunch the numbers on this stuff, right? And we can get into the implication, yeah. you know, like the thematic implications and like the the tone and style of the film and how that may have potentially influenced their decision to do it this way. But uh, this is this is kind of an unprecedented move. It's interesting to see this happen, you know, less than a month after the whole paradox, the, uh, the Cloverfield paradox situation. I have yeah. a feeling we might start seeing this happening more and more for these kinds of films. Well, I, I, I guess if you're just worried about this tanking or, or whatever, you're you're mitigating some some risk here. You know, lessening the overhead, and you don't have to do as much, uh, you know, promotion or marketing. Obviously, yeah, you just bank a lot of the the movie's budget right then and there. Um, but yeah, I. I it is weird. I mean, this is a movie that really should be seen on the big screen. Um, I, I I don't love that this is happening more often, or probably will happen more often. But uh, you know, obviously, I didn't think this before I saw the film because I'm you know kind of an old-fashioned traditionalist. But I'm starting to think that maybe this was the right move because <laughs> uh, this is this is a weird movie, and this movie is it's going to be difficult for this movie to find a wide audience. And I don't think this movie is going to be a hit. I saw it 7:30 on Friday night at a theater that I feel like caters to these kinds of films and should have been the perfect place for this to have a big old opening night um, screening at, you know, 7 o'clock at night. And it was mm-hmm. probably a half full, third full. Interesting. Um, and people were, there was a lot of chin scratching going on in the theater, I could tell. There was a lot of rustling around. You know, people weren't holding conversations, but there was clearly people kind of zoning out. I will say that. Interesting. I uh, yeah, I saw it late on Saturday night, and the screening we wanted to go to was sold out, and then okay. the one we ended up going to 20 minutes later was also eventually sold out. Okay. Um, you know, it, it wasn't playing on that many screens uh, in Seattle, which I found to be a bit surprising. So, I mean, you're, you're probably right. This movie definitely seemed to baffle the people in the theaters, <laughs> and it was... Uh, Yes, less populous than 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 even Ex Machina is something that people are you know the casual moviegoer who ends up ends up walking in, uh, maybe not knowing a ton about it is going to 
<laughs> yeah, be, be be taken aback by by what they see because you're right. It is fucking weird. Yeah, it's weirder. It's less accessible. Um, it it feels kind of a little scrappier, I guess, uh, than Ex Machina. It's, it feels less polished in, in some ways. It feels grittier, kind of, and I don't necessarily mean that as a compliment. This feels a lot more like a debut. Was Ex Machina his debut, or was Dread? I guess he directed Dread, didn't he? Oh, did he? Okay. Or no. Did, or did no, he, he, didn't. he didn't direct no. Dread, he just wrote Dread. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so Ex Machina was his directorial debut, right? I believe so, yes. Okay, this feels a lot more like a debut than Ex Machina did, I would say. Yeah, I mean, part of Ex Machina was, I mean, that's thematically, it was, it was very calculated, right? Yep. This movie is, is less that way. This movie is about how sort of wild and tangled everything everything gets. Um, and it, it might have been part of the sort of rushed production schedule, too. I mean, this he filmed both quick, back-to-back, and I don't know if Paramount just really wanted to get in on the Alex Garland game after Ex Machina came out, but... Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I don't really know the full production schedule, but uh, you are you are right in in that regard. Although this movie does have a lot of visual effects and CGI, and it's 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 pretty pretty big. I felt for an only forty million dollar budget movie. Yeah, that's that's fair. Although relatively contained, right? Like you said, just like the novel, it is. I mean, it's it's pretty well ensconced in this one forest where most of the journey takes place. Yeah. So, and the special effects are are definitely narratively pretty important. I don't know if they're as important or as impressive as what he was. I mean, the the special effects for Ex Machina won an Oscar. I think a very well deserved Oscar. Yes. And here they feel a lot more inconsistent, right? Uh, even mm-hmm. dodgy at times, I would say. Yeah, I mean, there's a surrealistic bent to this movie that wasn't there in Ex Machina. I mean, the the Ex Machina was about how seamless the CGI was and, yeah. and how, how believable and real it, it, it looked. Yeah, if um, you didn't buy it, that movie doesn't work. Yeah, and this movie doesn't really have that same concern. Mm-hmm. And it probably shouldn't because what we're seeing is is the unreal. I don't know. I, I I wasn't bothered by the by the CGI, although because of the aforementioned sold out show, we we did have you know front row seats. So I uh, I might not have gotten to <laughs> nitpick <laughs> the visuals as much as I may have liked. Sure, I'm not crazy about this movie. I got to be honest. Um, <laughs> I obviously need to see it again. There's a lot to unpack here. But my first mm-hmm. impulse my first impulse was uh, that was a very ambitious failure um maybe yeah. it's a little strong to use the f word but i my first thought was like yeah that that didn't work that was a failed experiment there's a lot of things about it i respect and appreciate and i'm interested in and would like to revisit but um whereas i kind of already felt that ex machina was a slam dunk you know by the halfway point of the movie to me i just kept i kept having to remind myself hey pay attention hey engage hey give give this movie a chance hey you know like get a little more involved here like try and figure out what he's up to i, I kept having to like redirect myself towards the screen because i honestly my, my mind kept kind of like wandering away maybe it's just the mood i was in but i was having a really hard time engaging with this movie i like this movie a bit better than you did. Um, it's certainly not the triumph that that Ex Machina was, and it, it's a movie to sort of think about. And I do want a second viewing. I don't know. Like again, a little slow at the beginning, but there are moments of sheer terror and horror in this movie that oh yeah were extremely visceral and, and really well done. I, I think this movie does have some sort of some deeper symbolic things going on that I think do work i'm not as concerned with the movie making scientific sense as as seemingly some of the negative reviewers 
um, have have harped on. I mean, at, le- at least that seems to be the the main through line with a lot of the negative reviews. As sort of a visual feast, I, I, I enjoyed the last half hour of the movie quite a bit. It's just so fucking weird and bizarre. <laughs> yeah. And it's not it's not like they stick the landing, but the, the, the ending does give you a lot to think about. And I... I think it. I think the internal logic works throughout, throughout the entire movie, as as weird as it gets. And I, I don't know. Maybe it's different because I, I I had just read the book and I was super interested to in see how how different the movie was in the story decisions that uh, Alex Garland made. If he had made the book, um, if he had been a lot more faithful. I think it would have been made probably a better movie and definitely a more crowd pleasing movie, but definitely far less ambitious than uh, this movie ended up being. Without spoiling anything, because I don't think we need to go so deep into this movie that we need to spoil stuff. Um, without spoiling anything, can you give us a little bit of a background of of what the major deviation points are? Like, is that is it is the book told from Natalie Portman's perspective? Is it is it told in like sort of like the fractured, nonlinear way that the movie is, for example? Yeah, it's uh, it is not told in, in that nonlinear way. It's it's very straightforward, and you start like sort of right in it. Let me rephrase. There are some flashbacks to Natalie Portman's training, but the movie is. I mean, the book is far more concerned about the the machinations of of the, the southern the group. Yeah. Okay. And the maybe the bureaucracy involved and the mystery surrounding the previous explorations, right? Natalie Portman's group is on the twelfth exploration, so it, it's learning about past ones and, and what came to be from those people, and the fact that they haven't, you know, none of those people have returned except for her husband, which is the same in the movie. But they're also exploring a, a whole different underground tower through much of the uh, of the book that is not even in the movie. The surrealism is less, and and, and the book has a lot of like. Uh, hypnotism shit going on and, and it's sort of a battle between like what's real what's not what's what's a hallucination what did i get myself into um what part of my past is real that that, that sort of shit and so it, it really is quite thematically uh different well i mean honestly i doubt people are probably listening to this who either haven't seen the film or don't at least know something about it but just for the couple people who may not it's you know it's basically an expedition led by jennifer jason lee and involving natalie portman's character Mm -hmm. into this quote-unquote shimmer which is sort of like this extraterrestrial anomaly that is like spreading out over this geographical space where in the world is it it's somewhere in north america uh, it's presumed, I guess, to be there. There's not a lot of info in the book. Like it, it, like I said, it's very mysterious. They don't give a lot of context for it. Um, we don't even know anybody's names in the book either. Uh, oh, so, interesting. No, we, we have no idea where this is. So how do they? Yeah. How do they engage? Like, how are the conversations written then? If you can't say a character's name, you just hear well, you just, you all, just, the dialogue is all you hear. You don't know who it's coming from. Well, there's the you know. She's the biologist, and there's a anthropologist, and there's the psychologist. Okay, Okay, cool. Well, that's kind of fun to just like it's you know uh, just to specify them by their various disciplines. What's interesting about the film is that it involves this group of five women who all go on this mission together, who go on this journey together. But what I loved about the movie was that, and I presume the book's probably relatively similar in this regard, is that they don't make a big deal about that. 
You know, like it's not a, isn't this, you know, they don't have a conversation while they're on the mission. Like, isn't this exciting that us five women are going on this mission together and there's no men in this group? Like the fact that it's not even really mentioned or brought up, it's not, it's not a thing is one of the best feminist statements that the movie's able to make. Yeah. And it's hinted at, I think in the movie too, that it's all the other missions they've sent out have been male heavy. There have been women involved, but they're just, they're grasping at straws here, right? They're desperate. They're trying to find something that might work when sending this group in there. That's as far as it goes. And there's not a lot of talk about it. And I think that, I think that's more effective than, you know, having to sit down and being like, you know, female power or whatever. Yeah. I, I wish, God, I wish I liked this movie more because I do feel like it is exciting for something like this to be coming out, you know, like the same month as red sparrow, for example, which I also hear is not very good. Um, yeah. you know, like I, th- I think this is very cool to be having, you know, have not just female protagonists, but like a film that has almost, I mean, is Oscar Isaac really the only male character in this movie? I mean, he and his cohort. Yeah. And, and then the, uh, the doctor interrogator. Oh who's, yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. What's his name from the Martian and, uh, Dr. Strange and stuff. He's great. I can't remember his yeah. name. He's awesome. That's right. Yeah. Um, he's in terror. Oh, so is that framing device in the book? Or is that a complete Alex Garland invention? That's an Alex Garland thing. How do you feel yeah. about that? How did did you like it? Were you into it? It's the I mean that's it's pretty explicit. I, I don't want to spoil much, but that whole it's a, it's a very different uh, story choice than in the book. <laughs> let's just let's just say that. Yes, I mean it's not a spoiler because it's in the trailer, but this this Natalie Portman character is being interviewed by someone about mm-hmm. her experience on this mission. And just Mm -hmm. the nature of being interviewed about the mission automatically Mm -hmm. suggests something about what will or will not happen to Natalie Portman. Yeah. So you're automatically diffusing a certain possibility, which I thought was really interesting from like a Brecht, I apologize for this highfalutin reference, but like a Brechtian standpoint, right? Like completely deflating the possibility of Natalie Portman's journey going in one particular direction is not a possibility because of the fact that you're actually seeing her interviewed after the fact. Well, I, you know, you'd think that, but then as the movie goes along, you realize right. that there are, there are other possibilities at play. Yes, yeah, we don't, and we don't need to go into that. But I just thought that was an interesting storytelling device, and I kind of respect Alex Garland for making for putting himself out there like that. Yeah, and you know, j- just for full trash. I mean, th- there are two other books in this series, so right the, the ending this movie doesn't really I, I i guess it's possible that they could have more more movies here but i i can't imagine a world where <laughs> they're making annihilation 2 at this point so i think one of my biggest problems with this movie and it's it's a pretty catastrophic problem really is that a i'm not really buying most of natalie portman's motivations and b i'm not really buying her as a fully formed character and i don't think it's necessarily a fault of the performance i kind of feel like it might be on the page so i think i'm mostly putting that at alex garland's feet that she is not a particularly three-dimensional central character i think there's more to this movie than we can really grasp uh, with with one viewing and I haven't delved too deep into sort of some of the analysis, written analysis yet out there on the internet. There's a lot about this movie with like personhood and how you identify yourself and who you are and 
what, what when you change as a person does that make you a whole new person and uh, th- there's a lot of shit going on and yeah. there's some really subtle cl- clever like switches in in who Natalie Portman's character is and becomes throughout this movie okay so I, I would say that like it's hard to say she's not fully formed because personhood or whatever she represents might be in question fundamentally yeah she might be remembering her past wrong because of some sort of indoctrination did you kept pick up on the tattoo thing i noticed that she had military tattoo you're saying that may not necessarily always be there and that's intentional i mean i noticed that she had tattoos at some point and i presume that was from her military experience yeah well i mean early on in the movie I, there's one scene where the only reason for that scene to be there is to show her forearm without a okay. tattoo again I, I think this movie needs repeat viewings i'm not saying it's going to make it such a better experience but i think there is more going on with her backstory than maybe we're able to analyze with with one viewing okay that's fair i just i just was having a hard i mean i feel like that's a really tricky tightrope to walk from a storytelling standpoint to intentionally make your lead character so difficult to sort of like connect with or understand or maybe trust like i'm not i'm not disagreeing with you that that might be intentional i'm just saying that's that's asking a lot of me as the audience. Yes, I, I keep keeping me engaged from a narrative, from a dramatic standpoint. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. Let me ask you about two scenes uh, because okay. two the most probably the best scenes in my opinion. There's a scene with a screaming bear in this movie <laughs> that I thought was just out of this world horrifying. Like that whole idea, I don't know, scared the shit out of me. Did did, did you feel the same way? Did you enjoy that scene or was it a little over the top? I, uh, yes, I enjoyed it and I agree it's terrifying that the bear is terrifying. The wildlife, you know, like the alligators and stuff, all that stuff is pretty disturbing. Um, there's two mm-hmm. really, really scary scenes in the movie. That's one of them. The other one is, is watching a videotape of something that happened. Bear sequence to me was scary in sound design, scary in sort of conception. I didn't think Mm -hmm. it was very good in execution, and by that I mean I feel that the action direction in this movie is pretty bad, Mm -hmm. um, uniformly, and it made me realize that even though I hold Alex Garland in such a high regard and I respect him so much as a director, I realize there isn't really any action sequences in Ex Machina. Yeah, and maybe my least favorite scene in the film is when it comes closest to becoming an action sequence, which is at the tail end. And I guess I, I don't need to spoil the end of Ex Machina here necessarily, but there is a, what I would call an action sequence at the end of that movie. And I feel it's the one of the poor, one of the weakest scenes in the film. And I'm starting to think maybe the guy mm-hmm. is just not an action director because I feel like this movie proves he doesn't really know his way around an action sequence. I feel like that's when the movie's kind of at its weakest. Yeah, and it's, uh, well, I mean, he hasn't had a lot of reps, right? It's only his second movie. He hasn't really done it before, so. Not necessarily um, holding it against him, but I guess it's another one of those things that when I made the point earlier, I'm just like, this feels a lot more like a debut film. It feels a lot shoddier and a lot kind of looser and a lot kind of messier than Ex Machina did. Uh, mm-hmm. Just It just feels a little more amateurish than Ex yeah. Machina did. And and I, and I think that that, that sequence, like the bear sequence you're talking about, is a good example of just like somebody who's a little bit in, insecure. The final scene, uh, like the, the finale, were you bought in to that whole sequence starting with the videotape and, and going on basically till, till the sort of denouement? Uh, yeah, I, I did like the ending. I, I knew okay. from the interviews I'd heard with Garland that the ending was going to be bonkers. Um, and it was. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I, I was into it. It was real. It was very surreal and it was very trippy, but I, I was into it and I liked how ambitious it was. And I 
the incorporation of the videotape was pretty effective. So mm-hmm. I and he he had mentioned in the in this I'm sorry I keep mentioning this interview, but I just listened to it recently. He had mentioned that his whole idea was that he loves films that end with extended sequences that don't have any dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that, and I I had to think back and realize that uh, Ex Machina, the climax of that film is very low on dialogue. It's really, it's all about the soundscape and all about the visuals, right? And mm-hmm. in this, he pushes it even further and really goes big. And I respected that. So of all the issues I have with the film, the ambitiousness and the weirdness of the climax was not a problem for me. I, I was impressed by it. I as well. I uh, thought the visuals were, were fantastic. And I thought the music was really good, too. Yeah. These are the same guys who did Ex Machina, and one of them is a member of Portishead, exactly. if, I, if I saw that correctly. Yeah, right? bo- is it not both of them? I thought they both came from Portishead. Maybe it's just one of them. I know that oh, that's... that's possible. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the, the soundtrack for Ex Machina is phenomenal. I think this one is a little less consistent, but the... The music in that last sequence, which is the music that's been used liberally in the trailers, is mm-hmm. ha- is haunting and really impressive. I I feel like this is a movie that we're going to evolve with a little bit. Um, I don't think it's a failure, failure like you say it sort of straddles that line, but I want to see it again. On, on first blush, I, I really liked it. It wasn't perfect. Like I said, it's a little ragged at, at times. Maybe a little slow at the beginning, but I, I I really want to sit back and think about and analyze it and see it one or two more times before I make a full either recommendation or, or or not. I hate to keep coming back to this whole Netflix situation because it makes it sound like I'm diverting conversation from the um, from the artistry of the film itself. But I do think that it's impossible to talk about this without discussing the implications of Paramount's decision and how the not necessarily the quality of the film, but the ambitions of the film have affected how people are going to consume this film around the world for the ne- for at least yeah. the next few weeks and i think that's going to be an evolving conversation in terms of distribution models especially for companies like studios like paramount who um, are going to be a little gun shy these days for financial reasons and because everybody is feeling the crush of the mouse house right because yeah. disney is so just such a juggernaut and it's so difficult to compete with them now for a number of reasons that you know your Paramounts or your Sonys are going to have to make tough choices like this with projects like this um, mm-hmm. in terms of how they decide to handle them and how they decide to deliver them to us. The the, the sad thing here is like we've talked a, uh, at length about the sort of dearth of these mid-budget movies out in the world and like we want more of them. We want more movies like this that are ambitious and ballsy and but also cost, you know, 30 to 60 million dollars however stuff like this maybe being a financial failure this this will probably break even ish and then mother of course you hope that paramount doesn't get gun shy about making these sorts of movies although you suspect they probably will you know they'll probably learn from this and not green light a horror sci-fi movie that's uh doesn't have a lot of potential to make money uh it's 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 kind of sad actually but i don't fault paramount because like it's not their fault that people didn't turn out for mother and it's not their fault that people didn't turn out for blade runner 2049 the way they they need it it's their fault for probably allowing blade runner 2049 to be a 150 million dollar movie um and it's their fault for spending as much as they spend in marketing right well i i guess i mean you can say that about any movie right you can say about about that that about any property that like well it's not it's not their fault that people didn't want to spend money to go see it um, you know, Blade Runner. I, I, I don't know. You, you, you can say it's their fault because they they misinterpreted the market and and the 
and the how popular the Blade Runner franchise really was or wasn't. I don't, I, I don't know. I mean, they have to they have to be the one to blame, right? They're the one footing the bill. Well, yeah, I mean, I I just I'm saying like I agree with you that it, that I bemoan and I you know like I will feel the lack of original films like this as they start to become more and more rare and and that sucks. But you know you can't force people to get out and make movies like this a hit. And I had plenty of issues with Blade Runner 2049 and I had plenty of issues with this movie. So it doesn't surprise me that Blade Runner 2049 wasn't a hit and it doesn't surprise, it won't surprise me that this movie won't be a hit either. So, you know, it's, it's tough. I can't, it's, it's kind of like if, if Black Panther had ended up being a bad movie, but we still would have had the, been having this big cultural conversation about making sure that Bla- that Black Panther becomes a hit because of what it represents. I mean, I'm constantly sort of like uh, hand-wringing about those kinds of paradoxes, right? I mean, thank God Black Panther turned out to be great. Thank God Wonder Woman turned out to be, you know, good. Uh, so we didn't have to have that conversation. You know, I guess what I'm sort of realizing, and this might be just totally anecdotal among people I know or groups of friends, but maybe, maybe you're right that if Blade Runner had been... 15% better and been more of a sort of universally heralded masterpiece. It wasn't that far off, but I mean, if, if it had been just that much better and had been nominated for Best Picture and had been buzzing about maybe it's going to win or Harrison Ford is nominated for Best Supporting Actor or whatever, people end up seeing those movies more often than not. I mean, the, the amount of people who have who I know who have seen Three Billboards and Shape of Water or whatever in the last few weeks is sort of astonishing. You know, I, I was about to make the argument like, well, quality being 20% better probably is going to equal box office uh, success. But, you know, may, may, maybe it is. Maybe if Blade Runner in a different universe, if it had been just a little bit better, um, it would have been a huge success. I don't know. We don't want to presume or put filmmakers in the kind of box where they have to conform to the populist things that may potentially make the film a bigger success while also artistically crippling it, right? Yeah. Like that's a really dangerous road to go down. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm just playing devil's advocate all over the place here. I just I just think that this is an interesting sort of litmus test for how uh, studios will choose to market and where they will decide to put their money and mm-hmm. how they will use these new these these developing platforms as as distribution models from here on out. Because yeah. I think for better or for worse, this is the future. And um, I think unfortunately, really original, provocative filmmakers who want to make not you know nonconformist films like this are going to have to deal with the fact that they're going to get vetted you know like if they're you know if they're going to take 40 million dollars of paramount's money they're they're going to get their product vetted there might come a time when a 50 million dollar movie with a big movie star made by a named director does just go straight to netflix i mean it's already happened you know something like bright i mean i guess technically if you want to look at something like bright as being made for netflix as opposed to the um, cloverfield paradox or this as being just made and then Mm -hmm. directed into netflix for pragmatic reasons yeah, um, I, but I think that's going to happen more and more is them watching the film, taking the film to uh, test screenings and that, you know, unfortunately getting reactions from these test audiences and then saying, uh, OK, that's that's going to Netflix. 
you know, yeah. this, you know, it's not, it doesn't have the same stigma that, you know, straight to video quote unquote used to have in terms of like B pictures. But I do think that that's going to happen more and more that we will, there will come a time when, I don't know, maybe, you know, Steven Spielberg makes a movie that just isn't tracking with a big audience. You know, he's making something like Lincoln, for example, like that's going to have a more specialized audience and they just aren't going to be able to justify putting it in theaters because they've crunched the numbers and it just doesn't make sense. And I wonder if, if they also see uh, the benefit of what that will do for the confidence of, of general moviegoers too. The added benefit being that the moviegoers will know that if a movie's coming out in theaters, it's probably going to be worth their time and money. Interesting. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so that might be helpful in, in that way for the bottom line of these studios. Who knows? Who knows? It's a, it's a, it's a brave new world. We'll see what happens. <laughs> that it is. Yeah, I, I think that's pretty much all I've got. I mean, the, this conversation has definitely made me want to see it again that much more. But mm-hmm. my very, my very first impulse afterwards was just like, yeah, that, that was, that just didn't work for me. But mm-hmm. I mean, it's getting pretty much unanimous critical acclaim, right? Like the Rotten Tomato numbers, tomatoes numbers are very respectable. Yeah, it's like eighty-seven percent. It's really good. It's 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 a weird one. It's a really weird one. Don't mm-hmm. be surprised if you haven't seen it yet. It's it's weirder than Ex Machina for sure, and it's weirder than than most things. The, I think the thing that I really compared it to when I was just when I was uh, leaving on Friday night was like that's like Event Horizon meets Alien Covenant. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> neither of which are good movies. I think this is a better movie than either of those. But that's really what it felt most like to me. Yeah, and and even to the point where like we're talking about personality or personhood or identity, just think about how much time Michael Fassbender spends with Michael Fassbender in Alien Covenant, and how much time is spent on him sort of interacting with his his own clone, if you will. Yeah, exactly. And this movie has a lot of that going on. All right, well let's uh, let's move on to our Oscar predictions, and we're what do we bet? We're betting forty bucks on this. You 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 want to make it fifty? Yeah, let's make it 50. That's a nice roundup. All right, that sounds good to me. Uh, we're going to start from the bottom and just uh, give our give our predictions here. Um, you ready? I am ready. We are just doing this on the fly. We didn't prepare any of this, so whatever our first gut instinct is here is official and on the record. Neither of us have seen everything. I will say I'm doing pretty good. I think I've got another eight films I need to see, and then I will have actually seen every single film nominated for an Oscar this year. That's my goal in the next week. So that means I need to see about a movie a day for the next week but i did watch boss baby a couple days ago so that's that's my dedication to the oscars that i'm i watched boss baby on a plane because i'm that much of a completist for this shit what a badass (laughs) um all right here we go starting with best achievement in production design beauty and the beast blade runner darkest hour dunkirk shape of water i'm going to go with the shape of water and we'll switch off who goes first in these uh, predictions uh yep i'm going with the same well wait a second anytime that we have the same we have the same pick should we just disqualify that category well it doesn't i mean it doesn't matter i'll just no 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 no. you should still mark it down just to see how 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 good we do okay how well we do what we got next here best animated feature coco ferdinand loving vincent Boss Baby, Breadwinner, you're up first. Coco. I'm going to say Coco as well. All right. Next, best foreign language film. Fantastic Woman on Body and Soul, The Square, The Insult, Loveless. What do you got, Matt? Oh, no, this is me. I'm going to say A Fantastic Woman. Yep, same here. I feel like we are following the same, you know, we're reading a lot of the same websites. We're following a lot of the same critics. So I apologize for the boringness of this, but we are going to be in lockstep about a lot of things. So it's going to come, as usual, it's going to come down to just a couple of categories that we're lo- that we're going to be radical about. Yes, indeed. Which might uh, include this next one. Or ones that I just haven't seen and I have no idea. So best documentary feature we got abacus faces places icarus last man in aleppo and strong island i am going with faces places Ooh, 
this boy. is a tough one though this is a strong category i've seen all five of these films and i, I like them all so this is going to be a fun one i faces place is a little bit of a sentimental pick for me because it, it is actually my favorite of the five but i do think that they will not pass up an opportunity to get to reward agnes varda with an oscar she was just awarded with a uh, honorary oscar actually this year and i think that they i mean she's a legend right so mm-hmm. uh, i think it's the best film of these five but i also think that it is the safe pick not to influence you or anything well, now I'm going to say Faces Places just to <laughs> Damn it. Hedge, hedge my bets here. You shouldn't have given me the hard sell. What was your? That's fine. You can keep that pick. But what was your knee jerk before I said any of that? I feel like Icarus is getting a lot of buzz. High um, profile, high profile for sure. Yeah, it's high profile, and it's it's good. I, I I watched it. I thought it was good. But who knows? I mean, there's there's always there there can be surprises in this category. Best documentary short subject. You got Edith and Eddie, heroin. Traffic Stop, Knife Skills, and Heaven is a Traffic Jam on the 405. I have not seen any of these, and I'm going to pick first here. And so this is going to be a shot in the dark. I don't know if there's a heavy favorite. I'm going to say Heroin. Yeah, me too. I have seen all five, uh, but it was important that you uh, picked before me so that you wouldn't be influenced. Uh, but I, I do think it is the strongest of the five. Uh, it's got the best poster. So that's, that's <laughs> plus, the it, unfortunately, it's kind of it kind of falls into. I, I don't mean this as a slide against the film. I think it's a very good short, but it kind of falls into that category where documentary short short subject winners are almost always they almost always involve either drug abuse, you know, substance abuse, or they involve the Holocaust. Yes, so, there's no Holocaust <laughs> film this year, so we'll default to uh, heroin. All right, best live action short, DeKalb Elementary, My Nephew Emmett, The Silent Child, The 11 O'Clock, Watu Wot, all of us. Okay, so um, I almost feel like I should recuse myself from this category. I uh, know one of the nominees. So Reed Van Dyke, uh, he's he's a friend. He was the year behind me at UCLA in the graduate program, and he made DeKalb Elementary as uh, one of his student films. All right, well, are you going to pick it? I am going to pick it. I'm going to try and couch this in such a way that I don't insult Reed. <laughs> Because I feel like one could make the argument that because of the subject matter he chose, he really set himself up nicely for a category like this because he made a film about a school shooting. Um, and it And it's a very good film. But I think that it's pretty hard to argue with how topical and how relevant that particular subject is right now and coupled with the fact that it's a very, very competent film. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it's probably too much for voters to pass up. In addition to that, and again, I don't mean any of this as a slight to read. I think he's a super talented guy. It also, and I know this sounds like a silly thing to bring up, but I think this is valid. Alphabetically, the first film. <laughs> Which means that it is the first film that, that you watch when you watch all the shorts. So it's the most, it's, it's, it's really the one that's like, that's with you the most, right? Because it's the very mm-hmm. first thing you see when you watch all these five shorts. And any time that somebody who hasn't seen the films looks at this list, it is the first film they see. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, I think that there's a lot of people who will vote in this category who haven't even bothered to watch the movies. And I think that there's something to be said for the very first title that pops up there and somebody just like, check. And again, I don't mean any of that as a slight to read. I would have picked the movie anyway. I do think it's the best of the five. I like read a lot and I think it's a very accomplished film. But I just think that there's also a lot of extenuating components that really make this probably a pretty strong candidate here all um, right i i like i actually liked a, a couple of the films this year i like the 11 o'clock a lot it's the lightest it's the funniest of the five but i i think to call elementary is what you go with right i'm gonna do the 11 o'clock just yeah. to mix it up just to mix it up or did i do you think i was i was attempting to talk to talk <laughs> you out of it you think that was just a ploy on my part i never even maybe. met reed van dyke maybe um <laughs> 
All right, best animated short film, uh, Dear Basketball, Kobe's movie. Yeah. Uh, Garden Party, Lou, Negative Space, Revolting Rhymes, Part One. I'm gonna go on a limb and say Negative Space. Yep, I'm gonna say the same. All right. Cool. I think I think it's the strongest of the five personally, but cool. I think Dear Basketball is tracking to. I think it's the favorite at the moment. Maybe that's just because of you know the fact that Kobe Bryant's involved, and so it's the highest profile, even higher than a Pixar movie. Yeah. But uh, I think Negative Space is the strongest of the five, so we'll both pick that. Cool. Sounds good. Best achievement in music written for motion pictures. Original score. We got Dunkirk, Phantom Thread, Star Wars, Shape of Water, and Three Billboards. Oh, this category makes me so sad. For a long time, I thought there was a really a chance that Johnny Greenwood could win this. I think he's my personal pick. He's the best of the five. Plus, I'm just a huge fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just bought my tickets for the Madison Square Garden Radiohead show in July Ooh, the other day. I'm very excited awesome. about that. Yeah, they're doing a four-day residency in Madison Square Garden in July. Um, anyway, so I love him. I love the movie. I love the score. I think it's empirically the strongest of these five. He has not won anything yet, man. He's having a really hard time breaking through. Alexander Desplat's winning everything. Mm-hmm. And it's such a vanilla score. I mean, I know I'm not crazy about that movie and I've made no um, secret of that. But really, guys, the score is so generic. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put my balls out there and, and pick Johnny Greenwood. Mm-hmm. But it's not just sentimental. It's that I feel that Hopefully by this point, now that everybody has finally seen Phantom Thread, now it's been nominated for Best Picture, and people have actually been able to consider it, I'm hopeful that it finally breaks through and he gets to win the big prize. So I think that the smart money's on Shape of Water, but I'm still going to go with uh, Phantom Thread on this one. I'm going to agree with you here, just just for you know hopeful thinking. I'm going to live by the idea that Phantom Thread came out so late that the early award shows didn't really catch up to it. Agreed. So I'm, I'm hope, hoping the Academy voters got to Phantom Thread and, and, and loved it as much as we did. So we both got Johnny Greenwood. Sentimental choice. Love it. Uh, original song. Man, wouldn't it be cool if Sufjan won this one? Huh? Um, I got a real soft spot for Remember Me, man. I just, I love Coco. I mean, I like Sufjan Stevens a lot. I like both of the, I think both of the songs he wrote for Call Me By Your Name should have been nominated, honestly. But, uh, and it is cool. He's going to perform it uh, next next Sunday. That said, I'm going to go Coco. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I think that's smart. Although, God, I could still I could see the greatest showman swooping in here and uh, and stealing this. But uh, but yeah, let's go with Coco. Let's hope for that. All right, makeup and hairstyling, you're up. Darkest hour. I as well. And that seems like an obvious choice, right? Yeah, it's kind of funny. You know, usually I'm actually kind of surprised that uh, that Shape of Water is not a nominee here, right? Like of all the thing, I mean, it's nominated for all the crafts. How is it not makeup and hair? Yeah, I don't get that either. It's pretty baffling. Because <laughs> honestly, if it was it's weird, in there, right? I don't. I, if it was in there, I would have. I probably would have voted. I would have gone with it. It seems. It seems like the obvious choice to me. But in of these three, you got to go with Darkest Hour. Yeah, of course. Uh, visual effects: Blade Runner, Guardians, Kong, Star Wars, War of the Planet of the Apes. Oh, this is me. Oh, yeah, fuck. go for it. Uh, I'm gonna go Blade Runner 2049. Cool. I'm gonna go with War for the Planet of the Apes. Okay. Ha- has it won before? Have, Has, the, have one the, of the Planet of the Apes films won? Yeah. I think the last one did, yeah. Um, this is, I mean, is is that sort of the consensus right now? Is, is that what people people are thinking? I just feel like Blade Runner is seems like an obvious choice to me. I don't know. Yeah, you might be right. I just I, I think that there's something to be said for, you know, Blade Runner takes place in the future. Well, I guess Planet of the Apes takes place in the future as well. It's just Planet of the Apes, to me, is trying for something like verisimilitude. Like, it's trying so hard to be really, really embedded in realism right Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. it's all about those close-ups of Andy Serkis's face where it's so realistic that you just you feel like you're looking at Andy Serkis not at an ape or something, right? Like all the emotions, all the conflict and stuff. I to me that I find to be more impressive than Blade Runner's kind of like flashiness. But you could be totally right. I think it comes down to those two or, you know, maybe we're completely off and it's the Star Wars game. All right, sound editing. Baby Driver, Blade Runner, Dunkirk, Star Wars, Shape of Water. <sighs> I'm going to go with Dunkirk. I am whew, Dunkirk, man. I'm going to go with Star Wars here. An argument could probably be made that uh, the people who are really passionate about Baby Driver might want it to win the two categories that it is uh, nominated in, just because pe- so the people who are passionate about it are really passionate about it. It's true. Um, and a lot of people hate Christopher Nolan's approach to sound. You know, like he's been criticized in the past for, you know, Interstellar, especially of like not being able to hear dialogue in certain places where he claims that kind of thing is intentional. Yeah. So I think that Dunkirk may potentially have a rough night on Sunday, but I do think there's a couple of crafts where it is going to break through, and I, to me, this is one of them. So I'm going with that, and you're going with Star Wars, right? Yep. Best achievement in film editing. We have Baby Driver, Dunkirk, Itania, Shape of Water, Three Billboards. This is an interesting one. Um, I'm going to say Shape of Water, though, and just be really safe. And I'm going with Dunkirk here as well. Okay. Sounds good. All right. We get, we get some differences coming up here. That's good. Um, sound mixing, Baby Driver, Blade Runner, Star Wars, Dunkirk, Shape of Water. Uh, going with Dunkirk again. I think it's going to run, run these crafts. But again, I think this is like, again, the Baby Driver love could play out here. All right. I'm going to hedge my bets and say Dunkirk here. All right. Costume design. We have Beauty and the Beast, Darkest Hour, Phantom Thread, Shape of Water, and Victoria and Abdul. This is kind of a difficult one. I mean, (sighs) Phantom Thread is really literally about costumes right? <laughs> i mean it's it should be the one but again i think shape of water is probably gonna have a good night so i'm gonna say shape of water okay interesting good i'm glad we i'm glad we split here because i think you might be onto something even though i am gonna go with phantom thread they costume designers guild or whatever it's called they held their awards over the weekend mm-hmm. um and shape of water beat phantom thread um which boggles people because most people have the same um logic that you just stated which is like it's literally about somebody who's designing <laughs> costumes <laughs> It's funny though. Like, do we consider the black, the creature from the Black Lagoon costume or uh, a uh, suit a costume? Like, is his that is might his be why they're not in, might be why they're not in makeup and hairstyling, right? It's it's weird, but uh, I I don't think you're far off. But I am, and I think that that's a perfectly viable pick. But I am gonna still go with Phantom Thread, and this might be a situation where my love for Phantom Thread may be tempering me into losing this bet. <laughs> so we'll see. <laughs> it's all right. Um, <laughs> All right, cinematography. Blade Runner, Darkest Hour, Dunkirk, Mudbound, Shape of Water. Yeah, I presume we're both going to go with Blade Runner here, right? Yeah, it's got to be Deacons, doesn't it? That's what I'm saying. I think this is number 14. I think this is his 14th nomination. Most everybody agrees that it's time. Personally, I would have, if it just came down to my personal preference, I would have chosen Dunkirk. An argument could be made that the excitement around Rachel Morrison becoming the first woman to be nominated in this category. Mm-hmm. Could give it some. Uh, I can see that. Give it some steam, or the shape. You know, sometimes when a movie like The Shape of Water that's nominated that has the most nominations, sometimes it just builds up a momentum and just mo- just rolls over everything. Where people are just like when they're going through the bout, they're just like check, 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 check. And I could potentially see Shape of Water doing something like that, where it just wins all the crafts and Roger Deakins is a bridesmaid again. Mm-hmm. But let's hope. Let's keep our fingers crossed that. The Susan Lucci of cinematography finally wins on his 14th try. Best adapted screenplay. Call Me By Your Name, Logan, Molly's Game, Mudbound, Disaster Artist. This is a tough one. 
Um, fun I'm gonna category. Go, yeah, it's fun. I'm going to go with Call Me By Your Name, James Ivory. It's a fun category, but unfortunately there is only one clear front runner here. It's like, it'd be cool to live in a world where Molly's Game or Logan were part of the conversation. But then again, we both also love Call Me By Your Name, so I have no problem with this. It is the one award Call Me By Your Name will win on Sunday night. Uh, Yeah, probably. That's sad. Um, All right, here we go. Best original screenplay. Get Out, Lady Bird, Big Sick, Shape of Water, Three Billboards. Matt, you're up. Get Out. You got to go with Get Out, right? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a toss-up for me. I, I, you know, I'm going to say Three Billboards. Okay. Yeah, there's too much too much love here. Everyone loves this movie. It's crazy. I the more I talk to so many people who aren't like crazy film goers, and they've all gone to see Three Billboards, and they all fucking love it. Interesting. Everyone loves this movie. Yeah. I, I wonder if it's it, I wonder if it's a Washington State thing because I don't feel that kind of love. As a matter of fact, maybe it's just the podcast that I listen to. Mm-hmm. But I feel so much vitriol towards this film. Uh, not me, not me personally. Like I don't feel vitriol towards it. I feel it in the ethers towards the film. I, I, maybe it's just the people that are being super vocal about it. But I feel like I listen to so many podcasts where people are just like, "I hated it. It's so problematic. How is it nominated for best picture? How is it a front runner? This movie is like glorifying all the wrong things." Like I just hear, I feel like I hear a lot more hate from the populace but it just keeps winning awards so it's like critical love but i don't hear as many glowing responses to it as you are hearing apparently maybe it's just the circles we're running in or something yeah i mean it's not it's not movie people it's just normal people who are seeing this movie tend to just absolutely love it civilians yeah, just the yeah the plebes. <laughs> uh, it could happen. I mean, it's a three horse race, and it's a. I mean, part of the reason that it's such a strong category is that this year the strongest films, like the best picture films, for the most part, are in the original category. Usually, it's pretty well split. Yeah, you know, usually, I mean, that's how Logan could sneak in this year, or Mudbound, even for that matter, is that all the heavy hitters are in the original category. Mm-hmm. That's why. That's why there was no place for Paul Thomas Anderson, right? I mean, ordinarily, this would have been his category. Not necessarily to win, but it's the one he always gets nominated in. Yeah, it's This year, there's just no room for him. I mean, even the big sick made it in there because it was so strong. So I personally think it comes down to a Get Out, Lady Bird toss-up. But maybe you're right. Maybe Get get Out and Lady Bird split the vote, and maybe Martin McDonough slides right in there. And maybe it just turns into a big three billboards love fest like it was at the Golden Globes. We'll see. Original screenplay, uh, Vegas odds here. Okay. Get Out is the favorite, but barely over three billboards. And then it's Lady Bird. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Lady Bird stock has been falling over the last couple of weeks, which is a shame. Mm-hmm. But that movie's been out for a long time, and it doesn't have, of, of course, so has Get Out. It's been out for over a year. But th- these movie, these these things come in waves, right? Yeah. That's how you make your way to that. You have to be riding a crest. Mm-hmm. As the all the you know as all the ballots are being uh, submitted, you have to be cresting, and I feel like Lady Bird has already crested, unfortunately. So I could see Lady Bird going home completely empty-handed on Sunday, unfortunately. I think that's likely. Directing, we got Nolan, Greta Gerwig, Jordan Peele, Del Toro, and PTA. This one's me, right? What a fun group! Yeah, I, I gotta just be safe here and say Guillermo Del Toro. GDT. Yeah, I'm gonna go with the same. Uh, would love for Nolan to finally uh, be able to break through here, but I think it's Mr. Del Toro's year, and that's that's fine. Um, it's a very accomplished film, and it's cool that he now gets to join his boys, his boys um, Inuritu and uh, Quran mm-hmm. to to truly finally create the three caballeros, as they call themselves, <laughs> and y- unite the triumvirate where they mm-hmm. all will hold statues, and then Inuritu can stand in the middle and hold his two uh, his two directing statues up next to them. 
bullshit. Um, <laughs> all right. Supporting actress. Allison Janney, Lori Metcalf, Leslie Manville, Mary J. Blige, and uh, Octavia Spencer. Now that I said Lady Bird was going to go home empty-handed, I feel like the Itania stock has fallen as well. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like there is enough love for Lori Metcalf, and her to carry the flag for that film makes a whole lot of sense. So despite the fact that Allison Janney has won everything, I am going to say that Lori Metcalf upsets here and finally breaks through as the representation for this movie that everybody loves. And Itania is a lot more divisive, and I feel like that performance is a lot more cartoonish. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I might, I might rue the day, but I'm, I'm going to go on a limb and, and go with Laurie Metcalf. All you're right. Gonna go, I, you're going to go with Allison Janney. Yes, I am. I, and you are going to rue the day. Okay. $50 <laughs> mistake you just made. I love it. All right. I, I feel like something like this happened last year. Didn't you make a really silly, because I won last year, and I feel like you made one silly mistake based on intuition or based on heart, and then I think that's how how you lost by one point. Uh, yeah, that is what happened. I forget exactly what, what it was, but uh, yeah, it was a really dumb, dumb decision. So I've, I've learned. Um, <laughs> best supporting actor, yep. Christopher Plummer, Rockwell, Woody. Willem Dafoe, Richard Jenkins. I am going to say Sam Rockwell. He is the crazy odds-on favorite here. Even though I would have gone with, I prefer Willem Dafoe, and I, I would have voted for Willem Dafoe, I do think Sam Rockwell is going to win. That being said, isn't it kind of fun that like one of our guys, yeah. it feels like one of our guys has been has been sort of invited to the Oscar table all of a sudden, and I... I do want to support him because I feel like I've been a big fan for a long time and I've and I've been vocal about how impressed I've been with him for so mm-hmm. many years and it's it's just funny that he's finally now part of the club. Yeah. Cuz he does he's always always seemed like such a such an outsider, you know, like I such know. a weird we, presence. Loved him forever and everything he's done. I, I was at a uh, dinner the other night and someone I forget how we got on the on the topic, but someone literally said I don't really get the whole Sam Rockwell thing. And <laughs> that's, I almost that's vomited fair. on the table. I, hate, I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> but but that's not a completely bonker. That's not an off-the-wall opinion. I mean, that no, a lot not. of people feel that way. That's why he's been a very he's been a fringy character actor for such a long time because some people just don't get it because he yep. really doesn't i mean with the exception of maybe something like uh i don't know iron man 2 he's always kind of like worked around the fringe right that's been kind of yeah. his stock and trade best actress francis mcdormand margot robbie meryl streep sally hawkins Saoirse ronan yeah this is a slam dunk right i mean how how how, how can Saoirse ronan possibly upset at this point it's got to be francis mcdormand there was a time there was a time when Saoirse ronan and timothy chalamet were kind of like a fun alternate universe idea mm-hmm. but just to at the risk of um jumping ahead to the next category i think it's pretty hard to imagine a world in which gary oldman and francis mcdormand don't just walk mm-hmm. away with these um here we go best actor in a leading role dan day lewis daniel kaluuya denzel gary oldman timothy chalamet you know matt you gave me something with your Lori Metcalf pick, and I'm going to do something similar here, Whoa. even though it talked about being being stupid. No one is stoked about Darkest Hour. <laughs> no one at all. With the sort of uh, Me Too movement, Gary Oldman's past has been brought up a little bit. Um, he's had some issues. And I just I can't imagine people overlooking Daniel Day-Lewis's last role here. Whoa! And I am going to go with a crazy upset and say Daniel Day Lewis. Yeah. That's that's way more radical than my Laurie Metcalf. I gotta say, maybe just because it's a more high profile category. But yeah, okay, cool. So we're just gonna cancel each other out. 
Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so your Daniel Day-Lewis cancels out my Laurie Metcalf, and we're back even again. Well, th- hopefully there's one glorious surprise in one of those two categories. Hopefully. I just, I don't know. I just can't see it happening. I mean, if anybody were to upset, I'd say it'd be Timothy Chalamet. Maybe. But, um, but I mean, honestly, like, if I if I was an Academy member, I would have voted for Daniel Day-Lewis myself. I know there's it's not a sexy vote because, like, oh, Jesus Christ, the guy has three of them already. Yeah, but of those five, he still is my favorite. So, well, you watch Phantom Thread, and like, how can you yeah, not think? He's, how can, he's the how best. can you not think like this guy's the best he's the person best at his job? Yeah, <laughs> not only is he the best person at his job, he's the best person who's ever done this job. Yeah, and so, and just the fact that it's his last role, and, and again, my idea that Phantom Thread came along so late that it was going to take a little while for people to catch up to it, and again, like no one is stoked on Darkest Hour, right? Like no one. I think I think there's a general consensus that it's time. I think his uh, problematic comments in Playboy and his ish, domestic abuse issues are uh, have been pretty much swept under the rug by a lot of very um, talented publicists, and um, I feel like that is really not a big enough part of the conversation at the moment to influence people into what I think most everybody assumes is a he's overdue. Mm-hmm. kind of situation so yeah. i just can't see this not happening yeah but but i don't know maybe we'll see i mean crazier things have happened final category best picture call me by your name dunkirk ladybird posts billboards shape of water phantom thread get out darkest hour is this my my pick yeah no no it's your pick go ahead okay so um given us a lot of thought and i've been hearing a lot of prognosticators and handicappers talk about this the consensus opinion is that it's you know, it comes down to Shape of Water and Three Billboards, right? They've been splitting all the awards up to this point. An argument could be made that the preferential ballot really shakes up this race. Mm -hmm. And in that regard, Dunkirk and Get Out all of a sudden become relevant. Because as much as Shape of Water and Three Billboards have won all the awards up to this point, we have talked about in the past, those two movies are really, really divisive, especially Three Billboards. Yes. And the preferential ballot makes it very difficult for a divisive film to win this award because if enough people put it very low on their you know list of nine that brings its stock down 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 to the point where it can't compete at that high level whereas a movie like dunkirk which maybe not everybody loves but very few people hate and most everybody respects all of a sudden starts climbing yes and you could say the same thing about get out right nobody hates get out some people might not necessarily agree with the politics that it represents but nobody hates that movie. It's a very competent movie, and a lot of people absolutely love it. Mm-hmm. So it can compete at this level. With I mean, a lot of people just don't get Shape of Water, and as a result, they're going to put it really low on that list. Yeah. So it all comes down to a lot of number crunching here, and I think those four movies are going to be jockeying based on. I think it's good. I think it's going to be a really close race. Yeah. I guess is what I'm saying, and I and I would not. I'm not going to clutch the pearls if Dunkirk or Get Out get announced. That being said, I am not nearly ballsy enough to go out on that limb right now so i'm gonna go with the shape of water but i'm gonna say it's by a nose like it's gonna be uh, we'll never get to hear these numbers but wouldn't it be fun to find out how close this actually is i would love to know those numbers um the vegas odds right now have three billboards at minus 125 which means it's the odds on favorite Mm -hmm. next is shape of water plus 140 Right, so that's fairly close, mm-hmm. although it's you know far behind three billboards. Uh, next is Get Out plus six fifty, so that's you know pretty six, big jump, 
six and a half to one. The next is Ladybird at nine to one, followed by Dunkirk at twelve to one. Keep going. What's what, what's next? Oh, what's next is The Post okay. at uh, fifty to one. Then Call Me by Your Name, then Darkest Hour. Yeah, Call Me by Your Name and Phantom Thread are both tied at a hundred to one. And Darkest Hour is the last one. No, Darkest Hour and Phantom Thread have the same odds. Okay, got it. Just interesting. Not just impossible. Um, <laughs> I, I think you're onto something with this preferential treatment. I mean, we could be overthinking it, but Shape of Water and Three Billboards, they, I mean, you're right. They are so divisive, and there's so many people that outwardly dislike those movies. The question is, is there going to be any sort of consensus among Lady Bird, Get Out, or Dunkirk where everyone has them two, three, four, or five, right? I can see people not liking Dunkirk, you know, or putting it at the bottom of this list. I can see people not liking Get Out. I think Lady Bird is actually the really interesting one here. Because I can't imagine anyone really putting that at the bottom of their list. But that said, it's probably hard for me to imagine a ton of people putting it at the top of their list, right? So I can see a lot of three, four, and fives. All that said, I'm going to go with the odds-on favorite, three billboards. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense that you'd be you'd be a three billboards guy. And that's good. I'm glad we disagree on this one. And I, you know, like, we're, we're, we're making a lot of interesting sort of, like, um, uh, conspiracy theories here. And again, we'll never actually know how this all went down. But uh, ultimately, uh, you know, something has to be said for the fact that they are one and two on the list by quite a bit. Well, what, what would your... Uh, preferential ballot look like, Matt? Yeah, let's do that. That sounds like fun. Let's rank them. Yep. Okay, we're starting from nine and we're working our way to one. So number nine on my list would be uh, Darkest Hour. Number nine on my list would be Darkest Hour. Yes. Okay. Number eight on my list would be Three Billboards. Number eight for me would be The Post. Number seven for me would be The Post. Okay. Number seven for me would be Three Billboards. Yeah. Uh, number six for me would be Get Out. Uh, number six for me would also be Get Out. Yeah. Number five for me would be Shape of Water. Number five for me would be, fuck, yeah, Shape of Water. That's right. <laughs> okay. Num- number four for me would be Call Me By Your Name. Uh, number four for me would be, oh, shit, this is tough. I'll say <laughs> Ladybird. Okay. Uh, number three for me would be Phantom Thread. Number three for me would be Dunkirk. Number two for me would be Ladybird. Number two for me would be Phantom Thread. And number one, Yawn, would be Dunkirk. Yeah, number one is Call Me By Your Name for me. Yeah, yeah I, I guess that goes to show that like Lady Bird and Get Out, I feel like, are going to be on a lot of people's mid-ballot. That was a that was a great exercise. I'm so glad we did that because <laughs> I mean not that we're not that we're like the cross section of the academy or anything. Yeah. I just I just feel like Moonlight really taught us something about how films that, that nobody I think it's less about being a movie that everybody loves and I think it's more about being a movie that nobody hates. Does that make yeah, sense? Well, well I mean kind if three of, billboards I mean, if three billboards loses on Sunday, I think it's a very good indication of the fact that it's hard to win this award if if a lot of people dislike your film. As opposed to everybody loving your film. Yeah. I mean, do you know exactly how the point system works for this? Sort of. It Basically, they work from the bottom up. So it's kind of like they, they tally everybody and, they, and whatever movie's got the most amount of nines, they just immediately cross that off the list. And then they tally them again and whoever got the most amount of eights gets crossed off the list. And they just work their way up until you have the least, until you've 
existed at the bottom of the least amount of lists. Does that make sense? Okay, yeah. yeah. Which I think really argues for the fact that it's going to be very difficult for three billboards to make it past that hurdle. Not to talk you out of it. You can't actually get out of it at this point. You've already, <laughs> you've already, you're already on the record. <laughs> no, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to get out of it. I, okay. I, I, feel, I feel good about it. Okay. I, think, I think the love for three billboards is somewhat inexplicable. Just the sort of consensus around it seems weird because, you know, in a vacuum, if you hadn't heard anyone else discuss these movies and you just seen you'd seen all nine you're like what 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 would the most divisive movies what movie is is least likely to have like a consensus around it i would say three billboards right Mm -hmm. and it it, it has baffled us and a lot of people at every turn winning all these awards so i i I don't know what it is about these awards voters that really gravitate towards that movie Uh, and it's a movie i I really enjoyed but it is it is is confusing i don't mean to like to keep elongating this conversation that we probably should wrap up but think about this the golden globes is the hollywood foreign press right yeah. And so obviously it's a film made by a British filmmaker turning a lens onto the United States at a very problematic time in political history. And uh, it's a bunch of non-Americans voting for this award. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the Golden Globes. SAG. SAG is obviously a bunch of actors voting on a film that they think is the best representation of amazing acting across the board, which I certainly can't argue with when it comes to three billboards. So, of course, give them the best ensemble. It's an incredible cast. It's a lot of great performances that each sort of like work on. On their own individual, you know, sort of like removed from each other. Yeah. So they're SAG. Okay, BAFTA last week. I feel like that functions in a very similar place as the Gold Globes in that it's obviously the British Academy and Martin McDonough is a Brit. Yep. So you really want to celebrate the hometown boy, Made Good, who they've obviously, you know, everybody has, has loved for a long time as a very accomplished playwright. And so let's celebrate his movie, which is turning a lens onto the United States in a particularly critical, complicated, provocative way. But now you've got a situation where now we're talking about American, well, not necessarily Americans, but Academy members, right? And we have this preferential ballot to really mix things up. And I feel like it's a harder hurdle to get over for three billboards that it didn't have to contend with the last three big awards that would have led us to believe that it was the clear front runner here. Yeah. No, just, just saying. You're making a lot of good points. <laughs> Again, the Shape of Water stuff, though, I, I, it's, it's surprising to me that that would gain consensus too. Yeah, I think Shape of Water is very safe. I, I find it very difficult to admit to people that I'm not crazy about Shape of Water because I think it's the kind of movie that most people want to be in the camp of people who loved it. I again, like I have talked to people, and maybe this is just my weird group of friends, but I've had a number of people just say they outright hated that movie. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, sure. And and so like it got so much hype, and I wonder if like these Academy voters finally went to see it, and we're like, what the fuck is this weird movie, right? Because <laughs> yeah. it's weird to say a, a movie about a you know sea creature who bones this 1950s you know mute woman is a safe choice, right? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, well, and that's what makes this year kind of exciting. Who would have thought that a movie like Get Out could break through the way that it did and be part, and not only did break, did Get Out break through and become a big hit, it has never not been on the short list of Best Picture nominees. Yeah. Like, throughout this entire year, since Get Out came out in February, we have never talked about the eventual Oscar nominees and not included Get Out on that short list. That's yeah. crazy. Not just for a movie that's been out for so long, but 
a genre film like that with that kind of subject matter from yep. a first time black director from you know starring a young black actor who you know up until six months ago was not a household name yeah so that's crazy and that's that's a really nice sign of the time there's plenty of things to get upset about these days and there's plenty of things to get angry about and plenty of things to get worried about but there's a few things out there to give us a little bit of to get a little bit excited about in terms of making baby steps towards a place we'd prefer to be in yes you know like the fact that if get out wins on sunday night it won't be a huge shocker Mm-hmm. Uh, is a pretty big deal. And I, yeah, I would absolutely not be shocked if, if Get Out won and it's its only victory of the night. Um, and that'd be kind of cool if it did. I wouldn't be upset. All right, Matt, let's wrap things up here. This has been a, a nice marathon podcast and I look forward to uh, to the Oscars next week. It's going to be fun. Yeah, next time we talk, we'll have answers to all of these questions. Indeed. All right, until next time, this has been We Like Movies. Say goodbye, Matt. Goodbye, Matt. <laughs>